Our New Testament reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the, the whole thing, is a clear continuation from the passage we looked at last week, the final verses of 1 Corinthians 1. The first words of our reading, the first words of verse 1, suggest this, suggest this is a continuation of the argument that Paul was making that we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at this central message of the gospel that Paul crystallizes, Christ crucified, the basis and pattern of a flourishing life. I articulated how in the final verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there's a call for us, a call to great care and courage in following after Jesus on the way of the cross. A call to great care, great courage that we might rest upon the promise of Christ crucified and walk in this way as the way to everlasting life. Enduring, persevering in that way is not an easy thing to do. In fact, it is something that we cannot do in our own power. Our capacity for care and courage is not sufficient. That perhaps is true at all times, but might be especially true in our day and age. Reflecting and reading a little about uh, this week about the political happenings of this past week, both in Iowa and Washington, D.C., one commentator I read made the comment that the habit of immediacy the constant news feed, the constant new information and our hunger for it. The habit of immediacy, they wrote, atrophies the capacity to care. Our ability to persevere, to endure, to focus and practice courage in the face of distractions and obstacles is perhaps especially at this moment in time diminished. We don't have the capacity for the care and courage we need. So it is that the Apostle Paul writes today in our reading of the Spirit. To be a person of care and courage, to be a people on the way of the cross, we must be, in his words, a people of the Spirit. It is only by being such people, literally in our reading, spiritual people, that we can receive rest and walk in Jesus' life-giving way. The Spirit must do this work. But what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be a person of the Spirit? We live, of course, at a time when that word is widely used. That's a title taken on. There's talk of spirituality being spiritual. But what Paul speaks of what he writes of here is something specific and particular. To be a person of the Spirit in his imagination carries with it specific qualities and characteristics. And from our reading this morning in 1 Corinthians 2, I'd like this morning to identify five features of the spiritual person as Paul describes them. Five features that might be grouped around these similar words. Rejection, distinction, orientation, cognition, and finally, completion. 
That is, the spiritual person in Paul's mind here rejects something, is distinct in a way, is oriented towards something particular, changed in their thinking, and in some very real sense, being brought to completion. So first, rejection. The person of the Spirit that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2, and he himself seems to embody in this chapter, rejects self-reliance. How could it be any other kind of way? With Christ crucified at the center of one's life, and the message that there's no room for boasting, for taking pride or resting in anything else, it cannot be any other way. We sang this morning in our first song of an Ebenezer. That literally means a rock of help. And the idea is, is someone on a journey, a long journey, would place that as a marker at some key juncture, ascending a summit or something like that, or passing through a difficult area, and put that rock down as a reminder, a reminder of God's faithfulness and goodness bringing them thus far. By thy help I've come. A reminder that the goodness we know of is not of our own making. In the first verses of our reading, Paul outlines how he came to Corinth, came to the Christians there, who were taken with their notions of success and eloquence and human wisdom. He came, he says, without wise or persuasive words. Came in fear and trembling in weakness. He didn't accord with their vision of what a powerful, successful, spiritual master would look like. With confidence only in Christ, Paul stands as this antithesis to what they would have expected. He belongs to a different age. His life is not bound up with satisfying the notions of success that they held related to self-reliance and power, autonomy. In so doing, Paul is clearly following in the way of Jesus, who, as he writes here, was not recognized by the rulers of the age, who John, in his gospel, writes, was not received by his own, who the prophet Isaiah described as one without esteem, one despised. The whole of Jesus' life, for all his wisdom, his works of wonder, is this picture of reliance, reliance upon the Father. Up to and including his death, I I only do what I see my Father doing. Into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the path of the spiritual person. This is the path to flourishing in the kingdom. When we conceive in our own minds of what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be mature, We can often transpose our ideas of success from different arenas onto the way of the cross. We can think that growth in Christ looks like a certain standard of success. I know tonight is the Oscars, and people watch the Oscars to see who wins the awards, but a lot of it is we have icons of success, icons of the good life held before us. And we can transpose those onto a picture of maturity, such that what emerges is someone who's almost superhuman, without limitation or weakness, autonomous, self-reliant. 
perhaps most pernicious in in the church, this idea of growth in Christ can take on aspects of the North American dream, right? Where God's favor comes on display through prosperity, through wealth, where sickness or weakness are considered signs of having not progressed. Paul suggests here that true people of the Spirit belong to this different age, this different value system. They don't prioritize this picture of autonomy and self-reliance. The spiritual person is rather one who relies upon God, who relies not on their own strength, their own eloquence, but in their weakness, in their limitation, rests in the truth of Christ crucified and the power of God displayed there. The life of such a person then is not about minimizing, hiding weakness, not about projecting power or confidence, but about relying in that weakness upon God. I've spoken about this before, but there are times in my life where I struggle with anxiety, with the feeling of being an imposter in some kind of way, And that leads to all kinds of failures of faith, acting out of fear, people-pleasing, failures of faith and love. A number of years ago, I was speaking with our bishop, a man named Todd Hunter, a man who I regard as someone spiritually mature. And I was talking with him about this, about these struggles, this feeling of anxiety. And he talked about how he at times felt anxious. And you talked about, oh yeah, sometimes I have a meeting or a, a difficult conversation and I know it's going to be hard. And I feel kind of the anxiety. He said on advance of those conversations in that place, he'd often say to himself a few words from Psalm 23 or the Jesus prayer or simply remind himself, I'm safe in the kingdom of heaven. I remember taking that, okay, I can, I can work that, I can work that system. And the next time feeling anxious, trying it, trying, saying Psalm 23 or something of the sort, and being like, I have got nothing. <laughs> I've got nothing here. I still feel anxious. But as I reflected on that conversation with him, as this spiritual person, a couple of things stuck out to me, a couple of things emerged. First was that maturity was not an absence of fear. It wasn't like Bishop Todd had ascended to this level of maturity that fear was like a foreign concept to him now, that he couldn't even like associate with it or connect with it. He had not become superhuman. I was struck by how humanly he spoke about struggling still with anxiety. And the second thing I was struck by was that in that place of weakness, through Psalm 23, through the words of the Jesus prayer, through this reminder about being safe in the kingdom, those aren't magic words, but tools and a means by which he offered to God that anxiety, that fear, and was in some way able then to appropriate the promises of God to that situation. And the picture emerged for me that maturity might not be like an escape from weakness, an escape from fear, but simply making that recovery time, that time of appropriating the promises of God, that much shorter, 
what might take me a few days of wrestling and consternation to get to that place of peace, he was able to quickly offer up this weakness to the Lord and receive grace. I think that is maturity. That is reliance upon the Lord and his promises. The person of the Spirit has rejected the idol of self-reliance. And because of this, they lead a life of distinction. We spoke some about this last week, but the idea is simply that the person on the way of the cross, empowered by the Spirit, resting in Christ crucified, has stepped off the treadmill of this age, of every age. They're no longer striving after the same picture of success and flourishing that the world in every time holds dear. As such, their lives are distinct and, in a way, free. In verse 15, Paul describes the spiritual person as making judgments about all things, but such a person is not subjected to merely human judgments. That sentence, it seems to me, is rife with potential misunderstanding. The picture could emerge of this spiritual person as this judgmental jerk on the one hand, casting judgment. On the other hand, I think of someone proudly tattooed with the phrase, only God can judge me living their life as some kind of libertine. The reality of what Paul is getting at here is more simple and more profound. Standing upon Christ crucified, having God's Holy Spirit, such a a person has stepped out of the natural order of things, such that they hold a different perspective. They look from the place of Christ crucified. They hold that as the first principle and look upon the world through that lens. So they look at the world in a distinct way, different from the wisdom of this age. They look at the world from the conviction that the most important thing is Christ and him crucified. And from there, then look into reality, into complex, difficult things, into the political sphere, into questions of economics, into ethical questions. This is not a call to some kind of pietistic, otherworldly thinking, but to a stance of faith, resting in that Jesus was who he said he was and that the most important world-shaping reality is the truth of his cross. So confronted with a question of personal finance, how does the reality of Christ and him crucified, all that that entails, shape my response? Confronted with a difficult moment with a child we are entrusted with. How does the reality of Jesus and his cross shape what I might say and do here? Navigating the complexities of dating in the 21st century. How does the fact that I rest, I boast in Christ crucified, shape what I say, what I do, how I treat the other here? Thinking differently. Second, it means the person of the Spirit is not under the judgment of the so-called natural world, not subject to human appraisal. Following a distinct way, holding a distinct perspective, there are actions and patterns of life that the person of the Spirit will engage in that appear foolish in the eyes of the world, that make no sense according to the wisdom of the age. Acts of hospitality and self-sacrifice, actions of grace and holiness, mercy and justice. 
being salt and light, as Jesus speaks of in our gospel reading, being distinct, standing out, that such a person might be a blessing. The promise of Jesus there is you will be different. And that is okay. It may be uncomfortable, it may be challenging, but that distinction is to be expected. And you can be at peace, free in this profound way from the judgments of this world. Free from the measures of success that our city, our nation holds so dear. This notion of distinction connects to the third feature characterizing the person of the Spirit, which is orientation. The distinct way of life for the spiritual person in the mind of Paul is rooted in this orientation toward Jesus. When Paul writes of the testimony of God and the mystery that has been kept hidden, God's wisdom, he's writing of Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He's the wisdom of God revealed. He's at the very center of what God is doing. Indeed, stands for Paul at the very center of reality. Part of the problem the Corinthian church had with Paul was that he kept repeating himself. They had ideas of power and success rooted in this idea of gaining knowledge and mastery. They expected to be taught more secret and esoteric things. And yet Paul kept returning to them with Christ crucified. There is something gloriously, intentionally repetitive about what we do each Sunday. We have, in the words we pray, in the songs we sing, in the words of Scripture that we read, week in and week out, the holding forth of the beauty, the goodness, the truth of Christ crucified. That's not by accident. We return to the same place. The psalm we prayed this morning, Psalm 27, has at its center this declaration in verse 8. My heart says of you, seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. The face sought after there is revealed in Jesus. The Lord is seen and known in Christ most clearly upon the cross. And the spiritual person's life is oriented towards seeking after him. For the early church living in the centuries after Jesus' earthly ministry, the life of faith, the good life, was characterized as this kind of ascent. An ascent into the very life of God, growing in the knowledge of him. Growth in the virtues of Jesus' life, the fruit of the Spirit. More than any other pursuit, this was seen as what characterized the life of the spiritual person. Seeing, knowing God. This was the important orienting feature of life. More than success in a career. More than effectiveness in the world. More than acquiring knowledge. More than any other pursuit. An orientation toward Jesus, seeking to see and know him was the defining quality. William Seymour, the African-American pastor at the center of the Azusa Street Revival of the early 20th century, from which the worldwide movement of Pentecostalism was born, was famous for saying after those early revival meetings, 
Don't leave this place speaking of miracles or all that you've seen, but leave here speaking of Jesus because he is at the center and the person of the Spirit seeks after him. With a life oriented toward Jesus, seeking him, the person of the Spirit, in the words of Apple computers, thinks different. Cognition. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 how many words related to our thinking are used. Judgment, understanding, wisdom, discernment, the thoughts of God, things that the human mind cannot conceive, the idea of being taught by the Spirit, the mind of Christ. Those who seek Christ, who base their lives upon him, crucified and are people of the Spirit, think differently. Their cognition is changed in some kind of way. We've already touched on this idea with, when we talked about distinction. But the idea here is of a different way of thinking that continues on, that one grows in, taught by the Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit given to the followers of Jesus is the gift of a teacher. And to grow in what he teaches is to be transformed in our minds. To be on the way of the cross, following after Jesus, changes you changes your mind. It involves this process of repentance, coming to think again. In light of Christ crucified, the kingdom he brings, taking on, having the mind of Christ in every sphere. How does this happen? Both our Old Testament reading and Jesus' words in Matthew 5 have the Torah, the book of law, in great prominence. In both places, what we might today point to as Scripture is held in high regard. In 2 Kings 22, the book of the law and obedience to it are, are tied to the people of Israel being God's people. Jesus, in his words, connects his own life to the Scriptures. He fulfills them. He stands at their center. Walter Brueggemann suggests that the Bible provides us with an alternative reading of reality, a distinct way of looking at the world. And part of what it means to be a person of the Spirit is to have your mind conformed to this alternative reading, a cognitive change. This suggests that the person of the Spirit must again and again saturate their mind in this distinct vision of who God is, what reality is, who we are, that they might come to adopt it, that we might know and walk in this alternative reading. When I think about the teachers who most profoundly shaped me and my thinking, it's not often, it's sometimes a particular like principle or precept, proposition that they taught me. But more often than not, it's this sense of kind of like knowing them, coming to know their mind, share in their perspective. And that comes actually not from like this specific information download, but from like encountering them, encountering their thought, their mind, and what they write and what they speak, and in knowing them best in one-on-one -on -one settings as a person. Even more than this idea of Jesus 
of, of the book of the law as like this alternative reading. An implication of Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, that all scripture is fulfilled in him, points to him, is that the Bible is a means of encountering Christ. More than just getting information, gleaning it, as we unfold the pages of Scripture, we meet the one who is the Word. Whether we fully grasp the truth of the Gospel, whether we know the ins and outs, we've downloaded the propositions, there is this continued value, need, and joy of encountering, feasting, as Nick said, on the living God in these words. By this encounter through the Spirit, we're changed, our thinking renewed. We more fully become the spiritual people Paul describes. This morning we've spoken of rejecting self-reliance, of this distinct way of life, this life oriented toward Jesus and just now taking on a different mode of thinking, new cognition in the mind of Christ. As features of this person of the Spirit, there's a lot there. In any one of those areas, in the fullness of that call, there's probably a challenge to each of us to more fully walk as people of the Spirit, to walk in the way of the cross. And there's perhaps an appropriate burden or sense of soberness, a desire to more fully cooperate that 1 Corinthians 2 leaves us with. But more than a list of things to do or a challenge to be different in our lives, this passage does leave us with hope. You see, for all their real failures, very real failures, failures to follow in the way of the cross, at no point in the letter to the Corinthians does Paul call them unspiritual. At no point does he call them natural. He calls them worldly, as we'll see next week. He challenges them. But at no point does he deny that the Spirit is with them, that they are, in this significant way, already people of the Spirit. Verse 6 in our reading this morning has that word mature. That word is related to the word telos, to the end. It has with it the idea of being brought to a good end, brought to completion. The call to change, to the way of the cross, to be a person of the Spirit comes not as this foreign imposition, this foreign list of things to do, but in this way to be what you already are. Later on in the letter, Paul will declare that no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. Those who confess that Christ is Lord are indwelt, have that Spirit. You have the Spirit. You are in Christ a spiritual person. The Spirit who provides all that is needed in following after Jesus who's bringing to completion the good work he has begun. The call is to be who you are in Christ, to live in line with the gift of himself that God has given you 
May it be so among us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we hear the call, we hear the challenge of these words. And perhaps some of us this morning, we, we feel a sense of being drawn out into that call, a sense of invitation. I pray that your spirit would guide and direct us in that. For others of us, perhaps this word feels burdensome. I ask that for those of us for, that, for whom that is true, that we would rest in the knowledge that you, O oh Lord, are working to effect the change you desire in us. You are working to bring to completion our flourishing in Christ such that we can reject self-reliance. We can orient ourselves toward Christ. We can be changed in our thinking. I know that perhaps hearing that list, those features, Lord, we might feel the sense of lack in ourselves. And so I pray that moved by your spirit, our first impulse would be to, in our weakness, ask. Ask that your spirit would work and empower this change in us such that we would seek and know and rest in Christ. Would you come, Lord Jesus? Come, Holy Spirit. You who are faithfully bringing all things to completion in Jesus, work in and among us, we pray. Amen.